Harden. Blair. Buddy, I haven't seen you for two whole weeks. I haven't talked to you for two whole weeks, bud. Yeah, it's been a long time. How was are you your, doing? Uh, it was the conference. Okay. Uh, the conference was good. Um, Chicago was interesting. Chicago is Chicago. It's, yeah. you know, it's been a long time since I've been there. Um, and it really hasn't changed much. Still a, <laughs> I believe that. <laughs> still a massive hustling city with lots of people and uh, everybody's in a hurry. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I used to go there a ton actually for um, concerts and whatnot when I was growing up because, you know, I was only two hours south of there. And yeah, uh, uh, yeah you know, I did never got the sense of, um, I'm, I'm just not a people person anyways, as, as people can probably <laughs> pick up anyways. Um, so it's just too much of not my own space. Uh, I enjoyed the time that I was there, but not a place I could live. Well, and I, you know, whenever I, I traveled those places, I always like talking to people from there and it, invariably it ends up being now it's my Uber or my, the, 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 the Uber drivers or the Uber eats people or whatever, you know, and, um, but I'm always curious, do you like it here? How long have you been here? And, uh, actually, uh, what I met, talked to three people there and they're all from that area. Um, and they, they did like it. They, I mean, they chose to stay there for a reason. So, um, Yeah. Kind of interesting. Well, it's but. a cool city with lots of history, and there's oh, you know, there's always something to do, um, and there's it, it, there is a hustle and bustle. But I, I bet once you get used to that and get used to the people, that it's it's probably hard to to move to different places because um, you're you're just well, kind of yeah, used to the, yeah. the 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 pace and everything. You know what I mean? Well, and having access. You know, uh, we were just we were downtown. The McCormick Center is uh, you know just right off the river and uh you're you're right downtown so the the stadium where the bears plays right there and you're, you're looking right literally down into the the sky skyscrapers and everything and so yeah i i can see it i mean like you said concerts and and sports and things like that um so i mean i yeah i i get it i i know why people do it but uh but the the big thing is i'm never really that tempted to move to a big city when i get home you know it's always kind of like a kind of a breath, like, okay, just relax a little bit. It's not wall to wall people and hustle and stuff. So, um, but it, but it is, it's the cliche is nice place to visit. Nice place to visit. Yeah, exactly. That's how I always felt. Okay. Well, uh, so episode 42, we have a, we have a very special guest today, Carden. Yeah. I'm very excited. (laughs) Well, we did a, so what, uh, five, six episodes again, we did a, we did a episode on, uh, business development you know, small business development. Yeah. Um, our guest today is John Meese, and he uh, is, has written a book, and he's, he is an expert on this kind of thing and has a lot of good advice um, about starting a small business. And, and actually, uh, even in this environment, this, this kind of environment we've been in for the last year is a little, a little trying and, and tough on people, but, but he, uh, he's spent a lot of time kind of developing this philosophy with this and so uh i'm really glad to have him here we can pick his brain a little bit so john hey blair hey Carden, thank you for having me absolutely thanks for joining us yeah, that's my thank pleasure you. thanks for being here yep so i i did a a a you know mediocre job of introducing yourself or introducing you so why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and and what you're doing and and sure how, you, how you're helping people well, my name is John Meese, and I, uh, I'm i the author of the book Survive and Thrive, How to Build a Profitable Business in Any Economy, including this one. It says that in the title, in parentheses, 
very <laughs> intentional to put that there. Uh, which actually, when came out earlier this year, what, thankfully hit uh, number one bestseller in direct marketing, top 100 books in entrepreneurship, top 10 in small business, which is phenomenal because the whole goal going into this was to create a step-by-step playbook that any entrepreneur could use to start or scale a business regardless of what the economy is doing. So why I wrote that, a little backstory there, my personal mission that you know really motivates everything I do is to eradicate generational poverty by helping entrepreneurs create thriving businesses. Because I come from, um, like many people in the world, uh, I come from a you know long line of bad financial decisions. And uh, in the same way that some families pass down wealth from generation to generation, other families pass down <laughs> poverty. Not just in the terms of the lack of money, but also just the beliefs about money and wealth and just bad financial decisions. You know, I... I still remember my family taking us out to like the fanciest dinner I ever had as a little kid. And it was the first time I remember looking around and saying, why are we celebrating? What are we celebrating? Why are we at this fancy dinner? And my parents said, we got a second mortgage. We refinance. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember as a little kid going, that seems like something's wrong here. That's not right. (laughs) Um, We have money, John. We have money. Now spend it. Yes. So, uh, yeah. So I, you know, I'm a first generation college student, but I was kind of, so I was kind of sent off to be like the poster boy and like change the family story and go to college. And I got a couple pieces of paper that say I know some things. And unfortunately it did not dramatically change the course of my life. And that was kind of a letdown. Uh, but rather than go back to my family and say like, well, turns out college was a waste of time and energy. Sorry. I guess we'll just go back to the same old, same old. Instead, I really just dug into figuring out, okay, well, what is the way if you are stuck in the cycle? Cause it, it's, you know, in the US, it's a problem, but all over the world, it's worse. It's far worse. You know, you know, talking about mm-hmm. day laborers living off of a dollar twenty a day, they're mm-hmm. you know, children barely eating. Okay, well, how do you change that? What is the answer if not college? And I fell in love with entrepreneurship because the reality is when you start a business, your business doesn't care if you have a college degree or a high school diploma. Uh, it doesn't care how old you are, what you look like, your race, gender. Your business doesn't care about, your customers don't even really care about any of those things. All your customers care about is can you create a real solution to a real problem for them? And that's good business. And so that's my personal mission now is to just make it easier for entrepreneurs to create thriving businesses that fuel their lifestyles. And so, you know, I've had a lot of experience in the U.S. working with, um, you know, Inc. 5000 companies, some of the fastest growing companies in the U.S. Uh, Worked for several years on Michael Hyatt's leadership team, if you're familiar with him. Uh, he's an incredible leader and New York Times bestselling author. And so now I've kind of started this this business, Cowork Inc., where we're building micro co-working spaces across first Tennessee and then the rest of the, the U.S. and then the world. Mm-hmm. But we're building these micro co-working spaces as a way to have an embassy for entrepreneurship in your community where you can go and get access to training and resources to start and scale a business from scratch. So that's who I am and what I and why I wrote this book. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, gosh, where, where to start? So I want to go back to your, your introduction. You, you talked about, um, generational poverty. Yeah. Um, so is it as simple to say that nobody learned the way out of that or were people not looking? Do you think your generations before you, it was just status quo? Uh, so my specific, you're talking about my specific family line. Well, yeah, just as an yeah. example, which I would say would be representative of others, but sure. just in that situation. 
Well, I think there's a lot of myths, right? And so my family kind of bought into some of those. So my parents specifically bought into the myth of like, you know, okay, you know, buy a house, work hard, you know, uh, just, you know, budget, you know, sort of basic financial practices, which aren't necessarily bad ideas, but they're not really enough to really Mm -hmm. like move up to a new kind of like to kind of like skip the line in terms of like wealth accumulation in your family. Mm -hmm. And I remember just like, I mean, even as a, as a young adult, I was looking around at like, okay, my parents have always struggled with money. My uncles always struggle with money. I mean, everybody in my family that I could think of. And so my grandfather is always the one who always bailed everyone out. And so I, and I'm named after him actually. Uh, my name is John Meese and he was, he was Colonel John Meese. So, uh, you know, he has more ranks. He has a lot more things than I did, but, uh, he, uh, he was uh, on the second to last uh, helicopter to leave Vietnam. He kind of he served six tours there and was one of the oh. more influential, you know, off- uh, special forces officers in in that wow. front. So I sat down with him once. You know, this was you know a few years before he passed away. Uh, so at this point, he's in his early eighties, and I just said over breakfast, I said, "Grandpa, like, okay, what what did you do differently?" I said because I'm looking at our family and everybody I know really struggles and financially of course isn't the only place they've struggled but that financially is the place where it's more obvious to look at it Mm -hmm. and i said and it seems like you've always been this stable rock in our family what have you done differently and he said john i'll tell you my strategy i make money and i spend money he said i'm just lucky enough that i've made a lot of money and that it turns out whenever a surprise check comes in the mail someone always in the family calls or shows up who needs something and there's a purpose for it so that's a credit to his generosity, but it's not really a sustainable strategy or a repeatable one for me. So I said, thank you, right. slash no thank you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and um, uh, so that's when I have kind of like went on this path of like, okay, well, what did my dad do differently? Well, my dad was an entrepreneur. He never called himself that, but he was a painting contractor. And there were periods, now he had periods of really good years where like, mm-hmm. you know, and we always, our lifestyle changed dramatically based on how my dad's business was doing. I mean, there was like, you know, eating out and getting takeout, you know, in nice Sunday clothes. And then there was, there were Goodwill years where we, you know, lived off of food from food pantries and wore clothes from Goodwill all year. And it was, it was really kind of like all over the place. Now, I later learned more about my dad's business and kind of started studying, okay, why do some businesses seem more, you know, to be able to manage the ebbs and flows better? And um, mm-hmm. my dad didn't have a lot of those principles in place in his business. But still, I saw how even him as a college dropout, in the good years, I saw, wait a minute, something's possible here, you know, that if that that could be really good. And that's what kind of like started my fascination probably with entrepreneurship. Um, But, you know, in other countries, especially, I mean, I think about people in third world countries a lot in terms of just the fact that like you don't. There's a combination of things. There's like an element of like you don't know what you don't know. And so there's a lot of options mm-hmm. people just don't see in front of them right. where they're just waking up and they're just trying to survive. Um, and there's an element of there are people who choose, you know, I think I think kind of the stereotype is probably that cho- people choose to be poor, that they choose to, um, you know, just kind of settle for whatever they're dealing with. And to some extent, that's true. And some people do make that choice. But the reality is most people that I've interacted with who are in living in abject poverty they just they don't they don't really know the way out. They don't see a doorway. They don't see a path. Right. right. And so, if we can bring entrepreneurship to communities that can of people that can look around them and say, look, if I can tell you right now, if you can spot a problem 
you can spot a business because as an entrepreneur, you solve problems for a profit. And so once, if we can just start there, I think it opens the door to make entrepreneurship seem a lot more accessible. So I'm less interested in like the, you know, multi-billion dollar valuations and the Teslas and the fancy right. houses and cars. Right. That's fine. Right. Other people do that stuff. That's not really what I'm here for. Uh, but but everyday entrepreneurship that fuels uh, the world. I'm excited about that. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, I, I think that's really interesting. And I, I kind of, in your conversation up to this point, can can sense a little bit of uh, skepticism maybe in our um, education system. Mm, um, yeah, so that's fair. So I'm, 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 uh, I'm interested in what you think about um, college degrees and maybe where we're, we're missing the point or where um, education is kind of um, getting it wrong right now. Well, that's a big one, but I do have opinions, so I'm happy to share them. <laughs> sure. Well, I think the first thing is, honestly, we should, I, I personally think we should look at a university or a school much like any other organization or business. Sure, they're structured financially differently than a business, but at its core, a business is designed to create a real solution to a real problem for real people. Now, categorically, businesses start to really become irrelevant and fall apart when they become more focused on the products that they offer than the transformation they offer. In other words, when they're more focused on the widgets that they're selling than the problem they're solving. Mm -hmm. And I think schools categorically with very few exceptions, fit into that category today, where they're like, we're selling degrees, we're selling classes, we're selling access right. to professors, we're right. selling facts and information. And the reality is most of those facts and information are available freely on the internet. Hmm. So we, what we needed maybe uh, 50 years ago is completely different than what we need today. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And the same thing yeah. goes in the classroom setting. I mean, the idea, that, the idea that you go to high school and you sit through a lecture of someone telling you something that you could watch a 15-minute YouTube video that would teach you the exact same thing, that is a complete waste of human potential. Now, there are some schools that have flipped it, where they say, okay, you study the material at home, and then in the classroom, that's when we actually do the exercises, what, what, what in the past we would call homework, right? Where they actually do the work in the classroom, so they're working with other students, so they're working with a teacher, much like you would work mm-hmm. in, in real life at a business, at a job, right? right? You're, you're working beside other people and with other people, and those are valuable skills. Right. So I think the flipped classroom is one example of where people, some some teachers and some school systems have recognized, you know what, wait a minute, the world's changed. People don't really need to come to us for information. We're no longer the holders of information because everyone in the world has access to the same information we do. We need to help them put that information into the right context mm-hmm. to help teach mm-hmm. insight. And in fact, that's actually one of the things, the global things that's happened. Okay, so one of my pieces of paper that says I know some things from a university is an economics degree. And so I do follow like global economics trends. And one of the things that the World Economic Forum announced last year was the age of information is over and we've shifted into the age of insight. Now, yeah, that's a huge thing. And we can unpack that a little if you want. But I think this is one example of that is where, school, where some schools are recognizing everybody has access to the same information. You don't need me to get access to an encyclopedia's worth of facts. Right. You need insight. And the difference between information and insight is the filter of wisdom. And wisdom, by the way, is a combination of, of practical, hands-on experience and research, you know, and knowledge. Mm-hmm. It's knowledge and experience. Like wisdom is a formula. Knowledge plus experience equals wisdom. So wisdom isn't enough. It's not enough to just read about something. You have to actually practically practice it, which is why you need teachers who are practitioners. Because if all you have is a teacher who's just studied the knowledge without the practical experience of it, they don't have any wisdom. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. 
I, you know, I, uh, I would like you to unpack that a little bit because sure. it's very, it's, it's very interesting to me. Um, as a former educator as well, um, this was very prevalent kind of as the, the new age education towards the end of my short career, but flipping the classroom was a big, it was kind of the, the kind of the hot topic, you know, um, yeah. exactly how you're discussing. So it'd be interesting to see on the, like the global economic scale, how we've decided that we've moved into an age of insight. Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, we got to look think about this because it's kind of a big thing to jump back and let's think about once upon a time there was a Stone Age. And if you live in the Stone Age and you had a, a, a piece of wood with a stone tied to it with the, the hide, you know, with a little bit of, of tendon from an animal that you hunted, that was state-of-the-art technology. You had a stone axe, right? And as far as you knew, that's the best thing there was out there. So whether you're chopping down a tree and having to replace or, or resharpen the stone head every five minutes or whatever it may be, as far as you know, that's just the way things were, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You didn't know that just around the corner was the Bronze Age, where all of a sudden people discover that you could melt down and reform certain metals. And bronze isn't actually a very great metal for like axes, for example, but it was better than stone, where you could sharpen a blade and reuse it and reform it into different shapes and objects and things. Huge technology. But again, when the Bronze Age happened, it wasn't that it happened all over the world at the exact same time. It was a long period of hundreds or thousands of years of gradual transition. Now, the world has sped up a lot. It's not going to take thousands of years for us to transition. But the reality is, while the World Economic Forum may have declared, and I agree with them, that the age of insight has begun, it's going to take some time for the world to catch up. Right. Um, so the biggest difference between the age of information and the age of insight was that the age of information was characterized by access to information was that we take it for granted now but starting in the 80s in the 1980s and then moving forward rapidly everyday human people got access to, through the magic of the internet and computers got access to facts and figures and information and communication channels that beforehand were always held by gatekeepers hmm. so if you wanted to hmm. learn something before you had to go to a place where they had the facts. It could be a library, it could be someone's office where they have a bunch of books, it could be a bookstore, it could be a university. That's where they had the facts. And so if you wanted to know something about anything, you had to go to a place where information was preserved and helped. And there was also lots of information that was kept behind closed doors. That was sometimes it was nefarious, sometimes it was just sitting on someone's desk and they never thought that you'd want to know what, what, you know, what right. the answer was. Um, and so what happened was with the age of information that changed is that all of a sudden the world became characterized by the idea that you can know anything about every you can know you can know anything about anything in the world. Mm -hmm. And we're just taking it for granted now that we walk around with these supercomputers in our pocket where mm -hmm. if you any thought occurs to you, the answer is only a you know a voice memo or a couple taps away. Mm -hmm. And the, the knowledge of good and evil, perhaps. Um as an aside, I've always thought it fascinating that Apple chose the their logo is is actually an apple with a bite out of it, and their whole business model is built on giving people access to the knowledge of good and evil. But that's a whole other tangent. Um, but uh, but the age of insight. Well, okay, so here's what happened with the age of information. It became overwhelming. We have access to all the information in the world. We spend so much of our time and energy ignoring notifications, emails, announcements. Uh, Bloomberg did a study that said the average person sees up to 10,000 advertising messages a day between text messages, emails, social media messages, billboards, right. signs. Right. It's just, it's more than you can, you spend so much of your energy ignoring information. And so as a reaction to that, we began looking to guides 
who could use their wisdom to take all the information in their field, in their field of expertise, and filter it down to give us insight. Now, insight is often characterized as just like the really the only three things we need to know. So about your physical health, for example, you know, the, the idea of saying, you know what? Yes, I can read a thousand blog posts on how to lose weight or gain muscle or get stronger in some form or faster, whatever my current goal is. But I would much rather have find one person who's an expert and a guide in that field and, to, and them to tell me, here's the one, two, three things you need to do. And that's true in every industry that that shift has, has been happening really for honestly, probably a decade. But now we've crossed the point during all the chaos of 2020, we kind of crossed the point where it's, it became just, just the sheer volume of information to keep up with. It became crucial to find your guide for your health, for your wealth, you know, for your relationships. I mean, who's that guide that you are looking to for, to give you insight? And so the age of insight is characterized by that. And so for businesses, businesses to stay relevant need to adapt to make sure that they're not trying to base on their business on an old model hmm. where they're selling information yeah. or access to some resources that are that perhaps in the past were limited, but instead that they're giving insight um, and they're filtering that information. And would you say selling insight? I mean, because even selling insight, I think, is more about a shift between a commodity that is tangible to mm-hmm. a, um, a, a person that becomes the commodity, an insightful person in specific realms. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, honestly, a lot of the stuff that's in my book, you can find in blog posts, podcast episodes, and other books elsewhere, right? Like, there's very few things, if anything, I teach that's truly 100% original. But... If there's if you find my perspective helpful, right. then that's then I'm the guide for you that can give you the insight you need to distill it down to like okay here is the nine step plan to build a profitable business in your you know in in this world in this economy that's going to thrive even when the economy is doing much better. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that for coming back to the university perspective, I think most schools are kind of built on this old model of like we are the gatekeepers of information, and they're not. And so they've become very, they've become kind of just like stuck in that model. And I think that for schools to reinvent or for the education system to reinvent, need to, they need to rethink why they exist and get clear on what is the problem we're actually trying to solve. Um, and, you know, what are we, what, what is the problem we're trying to solve? And then work backwards from there to, okay, well, how do we solve that problem? Mm. Yeah, interesting. Yep. I think, you know, two, two things that come to mind. Um, first of all, uh, we had a, another guy on, John, that was talking about business, and he was more um, specifically around finances and helping people with finances. And something we talked about, um, years ago, I approached our local school system about trying to bring in um, kind of a, uh, an entrepreneurship model, right? Um, where they could start learning, where the kids could start learning about entrepreneurship. I, I think personally, oh, as, as a serial entrepreneur myself, that is something that is missing even at that level, right? Yeah. These, you know, you know, I coach for years. I've never looked at 17 and 18-year-olds as children. You know, they're young no. adults. Yeah. And in, in the U.S., you know, that's arguable. But, but they're very capable and, and most of them willing um, to learn that kind of stuff. And, and I, I think you know, heavily encourage the school systems to adopt that and, and not even wait until college. You know, this mm-hmm. is stuff that you can broach the subject with these kids in high school. 
Um, because I don't know about yourself, John, but you know, I, I had kind of the entrepreneurial spirit my whole life. You know? Yeah. Um, I always, you know, I always felt like, you know, I don't want to end up working. I want to have my own business. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what direction my life would go, but I always wanted to work independently. And I feel like, um, you know, the college thing, Cardin and I have talked about many times that in some instances, I think it's setting kids up to fail. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, that's, a, and that's a whole nother subject, but, but I agree with you also that the information, um, is not nearly as critical as teaching them how to use it and how yeah. to apply it, you know, well, it, in, and if in I, realistic settings. Yes. Well, and honestly, okay. to hit off that point where you just said in realistic, to apply in realistic settings, if we're looking for one very practical thing, like if there's an educator listening to this, who's thinking like, okay, John, give me some meat. Like what can I actually do right now? Instead of just telling me the whole thing's broken. I would say we need to standardize and bring back an apprenticeship uh, program in every industry. I mean, this was like how you learned a craft or a trade in the old days, and you still do it. There's still a couple industries that use this, you know, like like, like technical, um, like electricians, actually, you know, and, Mm -hmm. you know, some like trades still have an apprenticeship path, but it needs to be in every field. And the apprenticeship path actually has three levels, traditionally. And this has died off for the most part, so I think we need to bring it back. The first is the apprentice. Now, apprentice works for free or for basic living expenses. So, in like, if you were like being apprenticed to be a blacksmith, for example, you would actually go stay in a little apartment attached to the blacksmith shop that was specifically mm-hmm. designed for the apprentice, and you would work there um, specifically to study and to learn and to and your and so your goal every day is to acquire new skills. And as you acquire new skills, you begin moving into the second level, which is known as a journeyman. Now, once you begin, once you become, once you are just, once it's decided by your master that you're training under, that you're a journeyman, then the one qualification that means is you can begin charging for your work. So you can stay with the same employer and you can charge him for your work. Uh, You can go elsewhere and charge other people for your services based on what you know. But it means that you're essentially kind of like, okay, great, you have mastered the basics. But if you want to truly become a master, which means you can begin taking on apprentices yourselves, then you have to demonstrate true excellence in your field and submit some sort of masterpiece. That's where that term comes from. A masterpiece that represents like, this is the full culmination of my capabilities. And you present that before a guild of masters who would evaluate it, give you feedback, and ultimately accept you or not as a master. Mm-hmm. But there's, I mean, like that's the kind of thing that like, I think, man, that should be in digital marketing. That should be like lawyers need that. Doctors need that. Uh, like that, there, I can't think of a field that really do, wouldn't benefit from having some a standard like that, a standard path for education, where you start, you say, okay, I'm going to go down this path, and you might start as an apprentice for, obviously not a blacksmith, or maybe I guess there are still some blacksmiths around, but sure. um, you might start with one company as an apprentice, and then immediately say, you know what, actually no, this was not the path for me, and you might go be apprentice in something else, but this is not the same thing as an intern, an mm-hmm. intern. It's kind of just like today, especially and most companies approach interns as like free or cheap labor. And they're like, we're giving yeah. you networks and exposure and connection. It's like, no, an apprenticeship is much like a college degree. An apprenticeship has a very sequential path of like, you learn this mm-hmm. skill and then this skill and then this skill and then this skill. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's a, that's, that's a very practical thing that I think we need to bring back. Yeah. It's oh, funny you would bring absolutely. it up. We discussed, we discussed that at length 
Um, oh, really? I, I think Good. And, yeah, and, and I I believe it should be even for educators. I mean, I I think that's oh, for how sure. teachers um, should be um, brought into the profession. And I know it's still happening. I mean, you, you plumbers are still doing that in some of these these trades. Um, but you know, you see the same structure um, in surgeons and physicians. Um, it's still happening just under different titles. You know, doing yeah. rotations and then doing residencies well, and and those yeah. types of things. And and you're seeing very very similar um, to that. But uh, yeah, I completely agree. And I, I think the the sooner that um, businesses can adopt that as this is what we're offering, you know, um, I think that that will greatly change um, education, especially higher level education, because now Mm -hmm. they have competition, right? Now they have, um, they realize, and I think that's already starting to happen as the college degree is losing value um, daily, it seems. Well, I'll I'll tell you one thing, I'll weigh in on the medical. Um, It's actually going the opposite direction. Um, kids, kids are picking their, their, <laughs> their chosen field of study without hardly any exposure. I've met many, because m- my background's in sports medicine, John, and mm-hmm. I've met many kids that say, well, I want to go into sports medicine or I want to be a physical therapist. And I'll say, well, have you spent time with one? No. They don't even really know what they do. And now yeah. with HIPAA, with HIPAA, and of course with COVID has made it almost impossible. Sure. Um, there's all these roadblocks about getting access to these, you know, these potential students or students so they can actually start learning that craft. And so there, there are, you know, kind of these roadblocks making it even harder. It it, it amazes me. And this is, I still think is a true story. A lot of kids spend more time picking out a car than they do their college degree. Oh yeah. I I have, you know, I have a degree in economics and another in Spanish and I didn't meet other than my professors who didn't really count because they were all full-time educators. Mm -hmm. I mean, they weren't practitioners in the field outside of education. So that was the only like practitioners in either field that I met, you know, like in Spanish, I was, I was told like, yeah, you could, they're like court translators and they get paid really well. I'm like, can I meet one? They're like, oh, we don't really have any here. You know, like, (laughs) you know, okay. In economics, they were like, oh yeah, there's some real big banks. They'll pay you good money for like econometrics analysis. I'm like, (laughs) Okay, like, uh-huh. can I meet somebody who works there? Uh, yeah, no, we don't really have any connections there. You know, it's like, yeah, right, right. So all these classes were just kind of like, no, I mean, there were there are some exceptions. My roommate in college, he took a an investing class, and his but his professor was one of the wonderful kooks out there who's like just teaching for fun. Uh, he the class started and he's like, all right, I'm splitting you up into three groups. You each get a thousand dollars of my money. Invest in a stock portfolio, and we're going to follow it throughout the semester. And whoever, uh, whichever, in which, and whichever stock has the greatest performance, you know, gets like extra credit on the final exam. Or like you were, I think your final exam might have even been graded based on like how well their performance did. <laughs> that's and, excellent. Uh, yeah, that's but that's great. unusual. I mean, that's not. But that's a great example no, of what, yeah. like, yeah. you know, my my roommate he learned more in that class than any Absolutely. other finance class. Oh, Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that just having that 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 way, you know, the, obviously the guy was very smart, whether he was a you know a, a teacher or not, is he knew how to draw people in and and, yep. and get them vested in what they were doing, you know, and nothing does that like money, you yeah. Know? So oh, yeah, no, I I think that's genius. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see um, how he made out over the years. Well, I know I know <laughs> I know he did really well with uh, the portfolio that my my roommate his his group did win. Uh, in their class, and I know that he did pretty well. I think they had like a you know thirty percent growth in a semester or something like that, which is pretty wow. pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that, that's 
But I don't know across the board if that's true. <laughs> I mean, this is a state school. You know, most people are there on state scholarships where they're getting paid to show up in class. So I don't. I don't know. Oh yeah. My exp- yeah. I, I didn't have a great. I did not have a great experience with the academic uh, rigor of that school. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and Cardin, he and I, Cardin and I have talked about this very subject quite a few times. You know, and Cardin's story is pretty interesting. Um, you know, he he spent a lot of money on a teaching degree, um, and he'll, <laughs> Cardin, you should just sum it up for him. Yeah, I spent a lot of money on a teaching degree. <laughs> and then I went to the <laughs> education profession and kind of looked around and went, uh, I'm not, I can't even pay my student loans uh, right now, so I'm gonna have to come up with something else, um, which I was mm. fortunate to be able to do. But uh, and at the same time, I think that's um, a larger um, um, issue that I don't think we need to get into now oh, sure. with education in general. Um, that, you know, we're, yeah. we're so backwards that you can't get those good educators unless they're those kooks that can do it um, because they've had a great you know, life and now they want to teach people. Yeah. Um, you, you know what I'm saying? So, um, to start out as a, as, uh, into the, the profession is, is nearly impossible, um, with the current economics surrounding the profession, most definitely. Yeah. But imagine if like universities rethought their role in the lens of the apprenticeship Absolutely. model Absolutely. Yes. and said like, okay, we're the guild, yeah. like we're, 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 we're a guild. We're going to get together. So they already give out quote master's degrees, right? But we're going to get right. a few of our true masters Yep. together and form a committee of practitioners who can help us evaluate and give credibility markers to people who are true experts in their field. And we're also going to help work with industry partners to create these apprenticeship paths. Because I myself would love to have apprentices work with me, but I don't have Absolutely. the time. I mean, like, I ha- I've actually done it before. I've hired apprentices before, but it's a lot of time and effort to come up with a whole system for that. Right, right. Right. You know, and the right. first guy I hired as an apprentice, turn, um, he actually it was he was my digital marketing apprentice, and so I just brought him alongside me um, to like basically like run digital marketing campaigns, build landing pages, email campaigns, and all that kind of stuff. He learned a ton, was incredibly grateful for it, um, and then he determined that he didn't want to do digital marketing, and so I saved mm-hmm. him a ton of time and money, Absolutely. and so actually. Yeah. So I connected, I actually then from there was like, okay, well, I, I hired him part-time to do customer support for us, my software company, Notable. He really liked that. Um, and we didn't have a full-time role for him, but I knew another company that did. And so I introduced him to another entrepreneur that he ended up going to work full-time for, and he still works full-time in their customer support team four years later. But like, that's, the, that's, a, that's a success path for education. Absolutely. Yes, yes certainly it is. And, and, and I've, I've uh, related this antidote many times, but I, I, I worked with somebody in, in school at which the last stage of your, your literally your last semester of education, you finally get in the classroom and you're actually teaching people and by yourself. Right. Um, to where the teacher, if they feel competent and confident and you will leave the room. Right. So, um, I, multiple people in our cohort that have made it through um, education, that's when they found out, I don't like this. <laughs> and after, you know, um, basically two and a half years of doing nothing but education-specific courses, they finally get in front of people in a classroom and realize, oh, I can't do classroom management, and this is terrible. Yeah, so, absolutely. Uh, well, and and, board. and that t- and that was something I was going to say, um, you know, to tie it in with, with John's uh, guide, 
right analogy is where were the guides uh, in, Col- in Cardin's education that said, now, by the way, Cardin, yeah. you're accruing a lot of debt and your degree is teaching. You know, do you know what teachers make? You know, and that's the thing right. where you, you have to be convinced they're aware of that. They know what's going on and yeah. they choose not to do it. And yeah, then that right. is, that ties back to, well, what is their goal? You know, and th- their, their goal is to spew information. Right. Well, and, and coming back to this, what I mentioned earlier about, this is true with not just colleges, but other businesses that become so focused on selling their product, they forget about like the real people they're serving, that their product is not what they're selling. You're not in business to sell products. You're in business to change, to solve problems. Right. And the problem is, mm-hmm. the problems change over time and your products have to change too. And so companies that get so focused on this, on their product and try to sell all their widgets, you know, they, they're the ones that really struggle to stay relevant when the world changes. Mm-hmm. So, so John, we, we've kind of examined and, and uh, looked into some of the problems, but so now let's, let's talk about your forte. Um, okay. Talk about now, somebody that says, you know what, I want to make some better choices financially. I want to develop financial independence. I want to start a business. So just kind of walk us through, you know, if, yeah. if we were to walk into your training center, um, you know, how, how do you start the process? Um, well, I walk through a system called the Thrive um, Playbook, which is sort of like a one-page business plan for your book, or, I'm sorry, for your business. Mm-hmm. And and that, and and I teach I walk through that and teach that in my book as well by the way and that's available for free on my website at surviveandthrivebook.com you can just download the playbook but it walks through a few things but the most important decision is is what I call your purpose statement and you this is and this is you know I help real people solve real problem with real solution and so you've heard me say several times that a business is built on creating a real solution to real problem for real people. Um, but but that's really the that's really the, the foundation of all of this. You have to find some a group of real people, and I say the word real over and over again, by the way, because a lot of business owners or aspiring business owners get lost here because they start creating imaginary characters, right. and they they create an imaginary product that solves imaginary problems for imaginary people, and then they try to raise a bunch of money for it, and maybe they do, maybe they don't, and it doesn't sell. Um, Juicero is one of the tragic examples of this of a company that raised, you know millions of dollars in funding, venture capital funding, to build this $600 machine, that uh, the Juicero machine, which sits on your counter in your kitchen to make you, you know, fresh green juice in the morning. Mm. Which at first you're like, okay, I mean, that sounds, like, that sounds kind of like, kind of expensive, but sure, I mean, like, they were like, well, in the future, everyone's drinking green juice. Okay. But then the way it works was you had to buy their protein packs, which cost like, you know, $12. Maybe it was $15. It was somewhere in that range. And you would buy a protein pack, and you stick a protein pack in the Juicero machine, and it would squeeze it with water into a cup for you. But then what somebody figured out and then posted a video of was if you just bought the $15 protein pack and you squeezed it with your hands into a cup and mixed it with water, it was basically the same thing. (laughs) <laughs> so they created this $600 machine that was unnecessary and they were so focused on selling the product they forgot that they were in the business of solving a problem and so even if they could find people that wanted green juice the simplest solution was not a $600 machine they actually already had the simple solution but their business model was built on the $600 machine and so they tragically went out of business um 
But they're a great example of a company that did this. They became so focused on selling their product, they forgot that their job was to solve a problem. Yeah. Occam's razor. Yeah. Hey, Occam razor. What is the simplest solution? Yep. 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 Certainly. So, uh, okay. The, uh, yeah, oh, go, go ahead. ahead yeah, no, no, no. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask because I'm fascinated by this because it's one of my, you know, bucket list items is to write a book eventually. What was the, the book writing process for you? Was it easy because you had it all in your head and you just put it down? <laughs> Sure. No. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I will say now, I, okay, so I wish there was an apprenticeship master path for authors, right? Because oh, yeah, I would have learned okay. so mm-hmm. much by apprenticing, working with an author through the mm-hmm. process of creating a book that then when I became ready to create my own book, I would have been wiser for it. I would have been much more efficient, made a, made a better book in less time with less money. I mean, mm-hmm. I just, mm-hmm. it would have been a huge, huge difference. But I didn't have that. So I you know, did have a publishing partner, but I still had to stumble through most of the writing process myself. Now that I've done it, now that I've published a book, I've already finished my second, and I'm working right now on a kid's book series on entrepreneurship, which I think we're going to do a Kickstarter campaign for in, like, in early next year. Um, Very cool. Very so like, I mean, like I'm addicted to it now that I published one, but it was, yeah. it was, a, it was incredibly difficult. I'm not going to bit around the bush there. <laughs> no, I do have some episodes... Now on my podcast, the Thrive School podcast, where I've interviewed a few different people, um, most recently um, a woman named Mira, and then immediately right after that a guy named Mike, about their book self book self publishing strategy and writing strategy that I mm-hmm. wish I knew about before because I think it honestly simplifies a lot of the stuff. So I highly recommend checking those out if you want to learn more about book publishing and writing. But I would say that I'm glad I've done it. Now that I've done it, I'm going to create more books. There's no way around that. Yeah. Um, but it was not a very simple process. Oh, interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> um, so, so John, I, I, we kind of got a little off track um, going back to the lining that new person up. Um, you talked sure. about the business plan a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then from, from there, where do we go? Okay, so the next step after you create your purpose statement, because um, that really informs everything else you do, is you need to, you need to come up with a growth strategy. Now, the growth strategy can, can consists of a couple things. One of them is I recommend you create a sample solution. So this is essentially a free version of whatever it is you sell. If that's in for, if that's coaching or books, then that's got to be some you know some sort of insight that you're giving away in the form of a podcast or an email newsletter or a blog. Mm-hmm. If that's if you're a coffee shop, you need to have some way that you're giving someone a free solution. It could just be hey, you know, you're new in town, your first cup's free. Um, but it's some sort of sample solution to give someone a chance to sample the wares. And then you need a growth model to get people in the door, whether it be online or in person, to, to sample the wares. And the gro- there's only five growth models, and I do teach them in detail uh, some, in, in my book. Well, I, I say some detail. I want to create a, a book on actually each of these five growth models. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something else I'm working on. But uh, you know, there's, there's five growth models you can pick from. You can either have you know, viral growth, paid growth, sticky growth affiliate growth or SEO growth. Um, and every strategy you've ever heard of to grow your business fits under one of those five. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you have, but your goal is not to have all five. It's actually just to pick one growth model and hyper-focus on that. And this is where a lot of entrepreneurs get lost because they create, like, they're like, all right, I've got a Facebook page. I've got a Twitter account. Um, maybe I'm going to, you know, I got a, I got an ad in the mail saying that I get $50 in Google ads credit for free. So I might as well try Google ads. And then you know, I should probably start like a Facebook group and maybe maybe Instagram stories and maybe a TikTok and maybe I'll, you know, hey, there's like a local event. They want me to sponsor it for fifty for $500. They'll feature my business. Sure, let's do that. And there's just sort of this like all over the place kind of spray and pray marketing. And then it usually doesn't work out very well. Um, 
So the growth model is the next decision you have to make after your purpose statement. Mm -hmm. And then it's a question of what are your products? Now, what I recommend is a core product strategy where you have three products at the center of your business. You can have more than three products, but I recommend you you have, have all these three, and you don't actually need more than these three. That's really all you need. The first is a gateway product. This is the painless purchase that allows someone, it's sort of like, you know, a super powered sample, right? Where it's, it's so mm-hmm. it's, it's the, when someone's coming in and they're saying, okay, I'm thinking about trusting you with my wallet, but I'm not, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence right now. What's the simplest way for me? What's a painless way for me to give you just enough money to become a customer, to experience mm-hmm. the solutions that you offer mm-hmm. and to be blown away mm-hmm. in such a way that you've wowed me and you've earned my trust. And so the gateway product for you as the entrepreneur is not a way that you make a ton of money. It's, it's meant to be a way that you convert leads to customers. Mm. But the gateway product is crucial. The flagship product is the second most, you know, most important product, but it's, it's on the other side of things. It's the most expensive thing you offer. This is the mm-hmm. full ex- transformation, the epitome, the full experience. Um, and this is something that does a couple things for your audience. One, it communicates to them what you stand for. Um, because this is, you're going to package this in such a way that you're saying, look, if you want to go all in, this is what that package is. It might be several thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. The reality is less than 10% of your customers are probably ever going to buy that product. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it exists communicates to everyone something to aspire to and what you stand for. And for those customers who do want to go all in and do sign up for it, it's a huge revenue generator for you as an entrepreneur. Now, the third product is the continuity product or the subscription product. And this is a way that you can really just create glue that holds your customers connected to your business and receiving services and solutions from you on a regular basis between every other purchase, which could mean that you have some sort of subscription product where you're sending them something in the mail or they're joining you on a Zoom call or they get some sort of perks. But the idea is that it's it's a continuity way. I mean, heck, Taco Bell just launched the Taco Lover subscription where for, I think it's $20 a month, you get a free taco every day. Now they know you're not going to come in for one taco. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, but yeah, if Taco Bell can get away with a subscription model, your your business can get away with a subscription model. I yeah. believe me. Right, right. Yeah, that's funny. I I think that's I I think that's outstanding. I really do. I and as you're talking, you know, um, in my previous life as an inventor. Um, yeah, that very much so, you know, the, the, the whole, you know, like a lot of people, I came out with my flagship, right? It was, the mm-hmm. mo- and I was in the medical field. It was a, it was a sports rehab and I had other things that would have been cheaper. And, and as things went along, we did come out with other things, but I, I see exactly what you're saying. You know, um, the low cost, get them in the door, establish mm-hmm. that rapport and that relationship with them. No, I think that's, I think that's fantastic. Yeah, and it's it's very uh, it's very tangible, you know. As as a not a uh, a professional that's doing entrepreneurship, it's it it just makes sense exactly. Right. What you're, and you can apply exactly what you're saying to a lot of successful businesses out there right now, and and, and it's very tangible. It makes sense. I think um, the kind of the questions I have revolve around marketing strategies and mm-hmm. and kind of how to, how you know marketing seems like it's changed so much over the course of the last. Um, 20 to 30 years, do you anticipate that same kind of revolutionary changes in marketing um, in the future? Uh, so yes and no. I say The reason why I hesitate and want to say no is that I think marketing, you know, you know, marketing is really just a path to getting people's attention. And people's desire, people's, need, people's desires to solve problems in their life will not change. The problems may change a little bit. 
the way we the way we actually reach them may change. But I think we have to remember that marketing at its core is getting people's attention. Um, one of the marketing tools, which at this point has lasted almost 100 years, and I think it lasts a lot longer, that I think is the most valuable possibly to start with if you're like a new to marketing and you're overwhelmed by all the stuff out there, is Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of marketing. Now, you may have heard of it. Sometimes people call it the hierarchy of needs, or he actually called it the theory of human motivation, but I call it the hierarchy of marketing. And Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of marketing is a very simple way of understanding the human experience and the fact that at any given moment, you and I, and every other person on this planet, has a hundred problems in our life that we want to solve, but we have one category of problems that we were more focused on solving than anything else. Um, and the first of those is your physiological problems. So things like, do I have food? Do I have water? Um, you know, are my basic physiological needs met? And so, if your basic physiological needs are not met, so if you're if you are exhausted, you haven't slept. If you're starving, and Elon Musk walks in front of you, and you know that if you, and you have some business idea that you could pitch him, that could make you a billion dollars, it doesn't matter. You're just, you're too consumed and distracted by your physiological needs. You have to check that box first. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The second layer after your physiological needs are your safety and security needs. So things like things like you know. Uh, am I safe? Do I have today? That means things, you know, once upon a time, it may have meant like, are there wolves outside my cave or not? But right now it means, do I have an emergency fund at the bank? Do I have a source of income? Can I pay my mortgage payment? Do I have a roof over my head? And those kind of, and, and if you're worrying about paying the mortgage and someone comes to you and tries to sell you something that's higher up in the pyramid, you don't even listen. Mm -hmm. The third level is love and belonging. Uh, you know, where you're maybe, this is when you're in, when you, once you climbed this high up the pyramid, you begin focusing in your life on saying, okay, can I, um, you know, do I have a good relationship with my spouse or my kids or my parents or my friends? Do I have a good, you know, maybe if you're single, it's, it's do I have a healthy romantic relationship or a path to achieving one? You know, this, when, once you've accomplished, check the box on your basic physiological and safety and security needs, this is where people's attention goes. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth level are your esteem needs, which are things like, do I have the respect of my peers? Am I well known in, in my field? Have I received awards or achievements of some kind? The fifth level is self-actualization, often today referred to as achieving your, quote, full potential. Um, but here's the thing. On March 13th, 2020, when the World Health Organization, well, okay, on March 11th, the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a global pandemic. On March 13th, 2020, uh, then the White House declared a national state of emergency in the U.S. In that little 48-hour period of time, every single person on the planet fell to the bottom rung. Hmm. They started worrying about their physiological needs. Can I survive? Do I have enough toilet paper? <laughs> I mean, you remember this was like, this was the thing, right? Like that was the first thing to go. That was the first thing to sell out in all the stores was toilet paper. Yeah, physiological needs. Everyone's worried about their physiological needs. And then they started going to safety and security saying like, okay, can I, can I leave my house? When can I leave my house? You know, am I allowed to breathe in the same room as another human being? You know, how often should I wash my hands? Is it every minute? I don't, you know, like it just, the safety and security needs and once people learned enough information that they felt like they could check the box, some people are still stuck there. But mm -hmm. once people, most people learned enough information they could check the box and say, okay, I feel enough safe and secure to maybe start thinking about the next thing. Mm -hmm. As I say that, I realize honestly, like a lot of people are still stuck as we're talking yes. in the safety and security yes, level. Certainly, yes. certainly, yeah. But there are people who are moving into love and belonging and saying, oh man, you know what? I really just miss friends. I miss. Mm -hmm. 
hanging out. I miss the movies. I miss dating. I miss mm -hmm. all these things. And it's because they're really craving love and belonging. Mm -hmm. Now, almost no one is actually up at uh, uh, self-actualization right now. So all of the um, Instagram models who are selling back in 2019, Achieve Your Full Potential, they're all out of business. Mm. You know, no one's paying attention to them. Mm -hmm. um, so you gotta get clear, regardless of whatever marketing strategy is to get in front of people, you have to get people's attention based on things they actually care about right now. And if you're selling something that's in the love and belonging category, if you're selling someone the path to a healthy, loving marriage, and you're knocking on doors and houses that are have the roof caving in and you know, and they've got, you know, piles of weak old food in the corner, you're knocking into the wrong door. Because mm -hmm. all they're 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 worried about their physiological needs. Maybe they're worried about their safety and security needs. They don't have they can't yet think about love and belonging needs. And so yeah. you've got to get clear what this is why it's so important to understand who your real people are that you're serving. Because mm -hmm. you have to understand the real people, which is like the top of the decision you make. Yeah. You have to understand who the real people are that you're serving enough that you can tell me where in the pyramid they are right now. You know, I I can't help but but laugh because I I think back when um, kind of this all really got started and especially the the pandemic and um, and, and Blair has, has mentioned this um, the Gail Gadot video or um, other and, and we saw this a lot with other celebrities as well right that are essentially selling themselves as a product right mm. um, that um, yeah. they kind of yeah. put out these videos and these things that they were you know talking about man can you believe what it's like for us and we're all yeah, in this together we, type we can of thing. get through and, this and instantly together the backlash was instant right <laughs> yeah. where it's people like yeah it's good for you to be able to have these mansions <laughs> and these, these private estates that you can walk around outside you know what yeah. i mean and it was a total disconnect of of the the people that they were selling their product to which is essentially was them which it, 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 and i think that hit a lot of uh, the resonation there was quickly because a lot of people were thinking about their own you know their own needs and and it, it was a time of um kind of where the celebrities were were not um able to sell well and actually products just, they were used yeah. to just yeah. just to tie it back to maslow when they're saying things when you're saying things like we're in this together that's love and belonging language right and so that that implies that you are as you're saying that already at the third tier oh, that maybe right, you never right. went down to the bottom all the way <laughs> but so but if you're talking to people who are stuck in the physiological yeah. needs or the safety yeah. and security needs level you're you're speaking a foreign language right right completely yep no i think that's uh, yeah that's very very good so so tying this in with what you do john mm -hmm. you know how do you with with that being considered you're addressing this really broad spectrum of people okay but but the way i'm seeing this is what you're presenting is applicable to anybody in any of those classes now that's how i'm seeing it is that how mm -hmm. you see it Yes, uh, I, I will say that generally, what, generally when I create content, I'm focusing on people who are in that. You know, they're 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 in they're crossing from safety and security needs into love and belonging needs, where they're mm -hmm. focusing on saying like, I want to build a thriving business. That's why I use that language so much. Right. One that fuels my life and allows me to spend more time with my family and friends, um, but still allows me to fund my lifestyle. So I'm not yet financially independent. I'm not you know like that like this is this is where I'm thinking like my customers at is that they're not yet financially independent where they're, they're still worried about like paying the mortgage and things like that. They're not looking necessarily to make their millions. They're looking to make enough money to fund their life, mm -hmm. but so that they can spend more time with family and friends. Yeah. And so 
I, that's, I mean, that's honestly where the focus of most of my language around my content is, and that's where, where I think my real people are, are family-driven entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, the truth is that the principles that I teach in this book, and this is probably the most generic, general book that I'll ever write in terms of like a, you know, crash course in starting a business, um, mm -hmm. you know, then uh, it, it is applicable to people kind of wherever they are on that level. I mean, to some extent. If you're already, well, working, if you're already right. achieving your full potential, right. you, may be, right. you may be long past this. Well, actually, and I'm thinking, you know, even even the bottom tiers where obviously people have maybe, maybe bigger fish to fry, but here's the one thing is if somebody's in that situation and even in the physiological problem, you know, if, if, if money or economy can help them and they have the realization that they actually have the power to change their situation, you know, that's, that's, I guess what, that's mm -hmm. what I'm thinking. What you're proposing, what you're, what you're sharing is a tool that yeah. anybody along those lines can use, right? Yes. They just have to have a, even if they're destitute, right? Um, they, cause what you're doing is you're trying to inspire them and empower them to take action themselves, right? And action is always the key. Yes, and I think it's really important to remember that this pyramid is not a one-way street. It's not just that you're climbing. So someone who's stuck in the physiological state, they might get enough food, water, and other, and rest to be satisfied for right now. And then, in other words, they might eat enough food where they're like, okay, I'm ready to think about my safety and security needs. Do I have enough mm -hmm. money coming in? Do I have a path to success or a path mm -hmm. to get out of this habit? And then, oh, okay, the money ran out. We're out of food. I gotta, I'm gonna mentally going to go back into this physiological state and focus on those needs. So people go up and down. And so I am hopeful that when someone's in that safety, and, the upper level of safety and security, when they're starting to think about love and belonging, mm -hmm. that that's where I can help people the most. Um, and then there's a chance that they're going to dip back down and then remember that there's hope, you know, and come back, you know, and right. so that's, that's kind of how I focus my work. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, any, any other, I guess, to kind of, to tie that end up with, with potential entrepreneurs, John? I'm sorry, what's the question? Well, just, I mean, just anything to kind of tie that up on, you know, somebody that is wanting to want to start a business or get into that. You, you know, one question that yeah. I have, I guess I didn't mean to lead my own question, but invariably finances is always going to come up, right? Sure. If you, if you got to start a business and you don't have any money. So, so what have you found to be the most helpful or accessible um, ways to get funding? Uh, you don't need it. Your customers. Your customers are the best way to get funding. I'm, I'm a bootstrapper, and so I'm very much a fan of your customers are your best source of funding. If you can find a real problem they want to solve, then you can um, craft it in such a way that, they can, that they'll pay for it. That's really all you need to start almost any business today. Oh, maybe, that's a, maybe almost any business is too broad of a term, but a lot of mm -hmm. businesses. Um, you can start with very little, if any, funding at all. I do teach in my book, so my book is equal parts marketing, sales, and finance. So actually, I do have three chapters on financial strategy for your business, and so one of them is about you know just managing the money as it comes in, but another one's about becoming cash flow positive, mm. which is a term that a lot of people don't learn about when they're learning about business. But the idea of being cash flow positive is just, it's the question of well, your business is always either cash flow positive, cash flow neutral, or cash flow negative. But the question is, in a given transaction, do your customers pay you before or after? you spend time and money to create the product or service that you're selling. Mm -hmm. And if it's they pay if they pay you first, you've got a cash flow positive business. Right. It, That's mm -hmm. yeah. And so the idea is I I and I have a list of different 
uh, strategies to become more cash flow positive in your business, which is a, which is honestly one of the best ways to avoid the need for finance for funding. Mm-hmm. Because if you're cash flow positive, then your customers can fund everything you do. Well, right. but but mm-hmm. let's talk about the example of sure. a coffee shop. Okay. You can't you can't get rent on a machine. You can't buy the coffee machines mm-hmm. with just good intentions, right? So if, if okay. you're trying to, I can give you a great example. Well, yeah, please do, please do. So I have some friends that actually started Mealtown Coffee, which is the second largest roasting company in Tennessee today. But that's right. not how they started it. How they started it was they um, they like there were these two guys, Chris and Matt, who wanted to. They they really liked the idea of roasting coffee and and. They found a guy who had a uh, coffee roasting com- uh, coffee roaster in his garage that he just used for hobby, and they said, "Man, can we come use it sometimes?" And he said, "You know, yeah, I, sure. You know, why not?" And so they came over. They got to learn how to kind of like roast some basic batches, and they would just go sell some bags of coffee to friends and family. Mm-hmm. They got together a little money. They decided they wanted to, you know, go ahead and get their own roasting machine, and so they did. They did scrape together a little money for this part. So for this part. Uh, I believe it cost them six thousand dollars, which is a lot of money to a lot of people. Sure, mm-hmm. but they asked their and they were, you know, at this point, you know, early thirties, you know, young families. But one of them was able to get his father-in-law was able to loan him six thousand okay. dollars, and they used that to buy um, a small roasting machine. And again, in a garage, they started roasting coffee beans and selling coffee bags, and roasting coffee beans and selling mm-hmm. coffee bags. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. they had enough money coming into the business that they could rent for five hundred dollars a month a small little dinky, you know, empty space where they could move the roaster from the garage to a building so they mm-hmm. could roast coffee there. Now, at first they were thinking they would just roast coffee there, but then the first day they were there, somebody knocked on the window and said, hey, do you sell coffee here? And they were like, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, they, <laughs> and they made him a cup of coffee. Great. Uh, and then they started getting more customers coming in. And so, and now it's, you know, I mean, there's a line, you know, to the door, as every minute they're open now for that coffee shop. I mean, this is of course seven years later. Right. Um, th- you know, they're moving into a larger facility now, a larger coffee shop now. Well, actually, they had to move the roasting facility. They bought a building off the square several years later, like a mi- like half a mile away, and they moved the, ro- the roaster there, and they bought a much bigger roaster so that they could roast coffee for their own coffee shop, but also for rest- like local restaurants and bakeries. Oh, and so they're yeah. now the second largest coffee roasting company in Tennessee. Wow. Um, yeah, that's yeah, that's amazing. So it's and, and much like a, a phased approach, right? Exactly. That's actually that's really, like the whole principle of bootstrapping is like yeah, it's you you've got to be willing to work on an a minimum viable product and yes. then build on that. Okay, yep. gotcha. Yeah, yeah. And, and John, that's <laughs> that's exactly how I started my first couple businesses. And oh, great. I mean, I very well know that. As a matter of fact, I had a meeting one time because people told me I needed to go to a bank to expand my business. Right. So I sat down with them. And the first thing they wanted me to do was uh, mortgage my house. And I said, I don't want to mortgage, you know, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. I didn't like the, I didn't like the thought of taking something that was precious and paid for and putting it on the line. And I, you know, so, but, but cash, even the $6,000, like you said, that's a lot of money to some people. And so, um, you know, and, and, but one thing I've noticed a positive of COVID, okay. Um, is there is a lot of uh, money available for entrepreneurs and for people starting small businesses, you know, on the state yeah. level, the USDA has a lot of money for it. And, and at least that part, I think, has been a really a positive thing that if people are willing to take advantage of that funding. It's actually a good time to start a business right now. 
Yeah, actually, so in 2019 was really one of the reasons why I started prepping this book before the whole COVID crisis, which is what spurred me to kind of expedite this book. Um, but we were at the like a like a 40 year low in entrepreneurship in America, which is really wow. sad. But now in 2021, we've had two business quarters in a row of record breaking new right. startups. And the great resignation, which is this problem that's affecting employers all over the place where they can't keep good employees. Well, someone did an assessment of of, of a lot of employees who were leaving and found out 33% of them were leaving because they wanted to start a business. So maybe that's bad news for the employers, but good news for entrepreneurship, um, which is kind of like a mixed bag there. Um, But if I could mention just on the coffee shop example, that's a very – that's probably one of the more – Cost of goods intensive and and infrastructure intensive business models that you maybe could start with if you're a brand new entrepreneur. I started my business with five hundred dollars, which is some people still a lot of money. But I opened a business checking account. I put five hundred dollars in it, and I said, "Okay, it's got to pay for itself." And I had to find a way, mm-hmm. and so I did. And you know, and that's you know, over the last you know six seven years, that first business has grown to you know, to fuel my lifestyle from that little five hundred dollar. You know, that I put in there. But I got to see the five hundred dollars dwindling and then I go, okay, how can I make a hundred dollars right now? You know, like I had to do all of that stuff first. <laughs> right, right, um, right. Yeah. You know, but uh, yeah, but uh, but and, and there are maybe some industries where it makes sense to go after venture capital investing or some funding of some kind, like um or like a bank loan. But I just I I never want that to be the default. Right. Because I've just right. seen so many entrepreneurs kind of get lost on that path of like once you get funding well, then the priorities change because like for a venture capital investor, they need to see high growth now. And so it doesn't matter if you're looking for a slow growth, work 30 hours a week kind of thing to, you know, spend some extra time with your wife and kids if you've got investors who want a 300% return on their investment. Right, Um, right, yeah. So just keep that in mind. Yeah, I I feel like uh, I would be remiss if I didn't ask who your character is in your children's book. Um, about entrepreneurship. Uh, that's still TBD, but I have three kids. Oh, okay, okay, okay. And so I've kind of promised them that they'll be in there somewhere. You know, I've got a, I've got a six-year-old named Damien, a four-year-old named Lucas, and a one-and-a-half-year-old named Myron. Um, and so I haven't yet figured out yet, like, if it's the details of how we're going to plot the kid's book. Yeah. Uh, but I, my kids will be in there somewhere. Okay, very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Well, John, that was awesome. We've, we've blown through an hour uh, and, and plus a little bit, but thank you very, very much. That was very, I just, it, I, I just love topics that you, you know, even sitting here, um, I'm learning and I'm listening yeah. to what you're saying. Good. And I, I just can't, um, I, I just applaud you for recognizing that there was a need for this and basically dedicating your life now to doing it, you know? And, and I know you. there's rewards for you, but still, this is a this is a very noble cause. Mm-hmm, Thank you. I think so. And one last thing I'll, I'll leave you with there is just that I talk about this at the beginning of the book that I view profit as in like the money. You, it's not just the money you keep in your business. For me, profit is a scorecard for how well you've served humanity. Mm-hmm. And so once you once you adopt that mindset, you know how could you not try to build a more successful business? How could you not right. try to solve more problems, make the world a better place? Right. Your profit is, a, and so every time I look at my business profit, I'm like, okay, well, that's a scorecard for how well I've served humanity. You know, I think humanity needs some more service. I'm going to get back to work. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Well, no, yeah. I, I, I agree 100%. Um, okay, so we're not quite done yet, John. We have a, okay. we have a little tradition, John. Ooh. Okay, uh, you're going to like this. So yeah. at the end of each podcast, um, we, we throw out kind of a random 
Mm, doesn't always have to be on topic, but question to the, to the guest. And we can all weigh in on it. Um, or sometimes just the guest weighs in on it. So it, it's just kind of a, it's a question from kind of out of left field. Um, and that's the easy part. Now, there is a little caveat. Okay. Mm -hmm. the, the question section of the show is called the monkey moment. Oh, okay? dear. And the tradition is to introduce the monkey moment, you need to give us your best imitation of a monkey. <laughs> <coughs> oh, preparing. Now? It, absolutely. <laughs> no, <please. Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> that was absolutely phenomenal. <laughs> that, that, Been to I mean, the zoo I much, know I John? Say this every time. That was so good. <laughs> well, I'm just grateful you asked for that. One time, somebody did ask for my Mickey Mouse impression. I thought, oh my gosh, now I've got the monkey impression. Those are literally the only the two impressions I can do well. So thank you. You nailed it. You absolutely nailed it. That wow, yeah. that is funny. We might steal that. And let that <laughs> that actually, Carter, we've talked on. about. Yes, we've talked about just having an MP3 and just playing and it. That, that might be, be the one, John. And we'll, Car we'll, we'll, we'll attribute credit to you every time. Yeah, absolutely, monkey, monkey meese. Ever top that again? Yeah, yeah. that was incredible. That was incredible. You're welcome. I love the prep. I love the prep. He's just, oh, he had to. He got to get. He, yeah, he's an actor. So, <laughs> so, so, John, this is the question Carter and I went over last week. But actually, it, uh, it was one that I wanted for you originally, and we rescheduled. So it's, it's, very, you know, it's very straightforward, and I know that um, and there's a lot of like, perceived responses, but I want to see what yours is. Okay. So the question is, uh, does money bring you happiness? No. Money is nothing but uh, – money itself does not bring itself happiness, but – I, I quoted in my book, um, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, I love this, that he says money is, uh, well, he said, well, you know, when you help other people, they give you certificates of appreciation with president's faces on them. <laughs> and that part, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah that, that kind of stuff does make me happy. But the money itself is just paper or not even that usually, actually. <laughs> so yeah. so yeah, what, anymore, what, yeah. what brings you happiness, John? Uh, loving others. Through my business and through my life, I mean that—that's really the greatest source of joy that I've discovered. It's not original, yeah, but awesome. it's true. No, it doesn't. Yeah, but it's—it is true. It is true. Well, and, um, you know, and based upon what you've related about a, a business model, um, if you're solving real problems for real people, um, you know that that the profit follows. Especially if you're doing that uh, with your, with, you know, through loving others, because you're really trying to solve a real problem that people have, right? Yeah, I mean, I talk. The first chapter of my book is called "The Entrepreneur's Paradox," and it talks about how, you know, entrepreneurs work for entrepreneurs get paid, but they don't work for money, and that's just this pattern that shows up over and over again with the most successful and the, and, and successful by all measures, not just how much money they got in the bank, but just successful in their satisfaction uh, as well and their impact. The most successful entrepreneurs are doing it because they care deeply about solving a problem or serving a people or mm -hmm. making the world a better place. Yeah. And the, the the you know you have to be smart about that so that you do generate money because money is what allows you to continue to fuel right, what you're doing. Right. But the mm -hmm. money the entrepreneurs who get into it just for the money burn out and right. fail and explode right. and it's not not pretty. Well, mm -hmm. and that's that's important. I mean, because money is a reality of our lives. Yeah. Right. I mean, and we do need it. However, like you said, um, it doesn't have to be the primary for focus. Sure. Yeah. So. Exactly. Um, 
Well, uh, again, thank you very, very much. Um, John, John's book, Survive and Thrive. Um, and you said that you can get it off your website. Yeah, go to surviveandthrivebook.com. So you can get the book there. You'll find links to it, of course. It's on Amazon and Audible right, and all the right. other wonderful places like Barnes & Noble or wherever else you might buy books. Um, but there's also a free playbook you can download there that goes with it that will help you put it to practice in your business. On your website. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, John, uh, well, keep us posted. And uh, actually, I'd love to have you back sometime after your next book comes out. It'd be fun to talk to you about Sounds that great. as well. Yeah, it would. I'll have so, to work on my gorilla impression for that one, I guess, or something. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So I don't know. Yes. Actually, you might have to trademark that monkey sound. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to have to we give you royalties that. off that. That my was fantastic. Okay, my gorilla impression is actually pretty good. That was a joke. Sorry. But, but yes, the monkey one, you, you can keep it. <laughs> All right. Well, I released my copyright. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks again very much for taking the time and sharing your expertise. It was very enjoyable. It was great. It's my pleasure. Take care. Thank you, Blair. Thank okay. you, Cardin. And thank you, everyone else who's listening. Keep up the good work. Okay. Cardin, until next time, good night. Good night. Good night, John. Good night. <laughs>